Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 10 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Episode 10. That's 10. That's in the double digits, folks. I can't tell you how happy I am about that. I mean, it doesn't sound like much of an accomplishment when you consider that the old podcast had over 300 episodes, but a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't even sure we were going to make it into the double digits, so I'm going to be really happy about that. And speaking of happy, happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners out there, especially those in the States where the holiday is, you know, meaningful. I hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving. I certainly have a lot to be thankful for. And in this podcast, I have a lot to be thankful for from the guests who have appeared to the people who have befriended us on Facebook and Twitter and participate in the weekly conversations and have pointed other movies my direction that maybe they don't want to appear on the show, but they're a little surprised when I haven't seen this movie or that movie. But I do want to give thanks to one person in particular And that is Chris Talent, who has already appeared on the show. And as some of you know, I've started another podcast with him uh, talking about World of Warcraft. But Chris has already done a lot to help this podcast. And I just want to take a second to recognize that. Because there hasn't been a week that's gone by since this show started that Chris hasn't participated in the online conversation or shared the post that goes live announcing that there's a new episode. He has been a very active part, and, and those activities, you know, posting a comment or hitting the share button on Twitter or on Facebook, they don't take much time, but they mean a lot, because that helps get the word out about the show, and he's gotten responses on the weekly conversation from his friends, and it just makes me feel like there's someone out there who wants to see this show succeed beyond me, and he gets nothing out of that. It's just a really friendly thing to do. So Chris, I really appreciate it. And I thank you. And I thank any of you who have helped spread the word. And I I appreciate it when you do that. Take two seconds, click that like button, click that share button. Let me know that you want other people to see this show. I'm going to keep the introduction short this week, so let's get to the Friday Inquiry. This week I asked, what's your favorite movie musical? And I got a slew of answers. Uh, Jeff Clark said, Across the Universe. James Jackson said, Sweeney Todd. Denise Lehman, Singing in the Rain. Lisa Ann Moore, Greatest Showman. Jason Phillips, Tommy. Michelle Dameron, I Can't Decide Between All That Jazz, Cabaret, or A Chorus Line. Zach Mann, The Producers. Sherry Talent, My Fair Lady, and The Sound of Music. Zach Mann, uh, also very fond of The Muppet Christmas Carol and other musical versions with the song I Hate People in it. Mary Kay, Newsies. Benjamin Young, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Tom Sobieski, West Side Story. Camille Remy, If I Had to Pick an Absolute Favorite, It Would Be a Tie Between Godspell and Willy Wonka. Mark Cresson, Team America. That's an interesting choice. Laura Poe, The Sound of Music. Cat Love, The King and I, Sound of Music, Moulin Rouge, and Aristocats. Chris Talent said, Blues Brothers, in the traditional sense, Rock and Roll High School, in the non-traditional sense. James Rodriguez, Singing in the Rain with the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a close second. Alexander Williams, uh, Got Real Glittertude for Hairspray. It's funny, smart, light, and does great commentary. And Brian Holcomb says, Singing in the Rain huge variety of movies in there and a lot of them are great musicals i'm not 
really sure that I'd count Team America as a musical, but it does have musical numbers in it. But a lot of these are movies I absolutely love. I love some of the more bizarre choices like Across the Universe and The Nightmare Before Christmas and, of course, The Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm a huge Muppet fan, but my absolute favorite movie musical has got to be the original Music Man. Uh, it's just something really simple and elegant about that. And I, I love the stage play. I was in a very small role in a production of the stage play at one point in my life. And I just, I love the songs from it. My all time favorite musical, as I talk about in this episode coming up is Les Miserables, but the movie left a, a lot to be desired, unfortunately, but movie musicals are what we're talking about. And we're talking about the, this week because Luis Ramirez brought us West side story one of the iconic movie musicals of all time. Uh, it's appeared on the AFI list. It won 10 Academy Awards. It's a huge picture. And it's also the farthest back we've gone as far as film, because we're going back to 1961 for this film. So we finally get out of the 70s, 80s, 90s. Not that there's been any problem being there, but it's also nice to go back and see some older films as well. So here we go with 1961's West Side Story. So you're in New York? Yeah, I am. Like I said, I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn. So yeah. do you see groups of kids walking down the street, snapping their fingers all the time? No, not really. Yeah, I know. It's funny that I picked West Side Story. I'm also Puerto Rican, so there you go. I was going to try and gently get to that topic of your heritage just because I felt like it was important. So I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know. I, no, I really enjoy the musical so or the movie, too, so. And I should pick yeah. the movie because I've never actually seen the play version. And oh, I hear, really? Yeah, and I hear it's actually quite, not extremely different from the film, but enough so that, and it's, uh, it's a bias that's unfounded, but uh, I actually think the f film version is probably better structured than the, than the way I've heard how the play is uh, performed. Yeah, my understanding is a couple of the musical numbers are rearranged. From they the are. And from the way they appear in the movie and um and some of the lyrics are a little racier just because of the requirements of the film in the day <laughs> yeah yeah i heard about that too yeah boy we're kind of just jumping right into the movie which is fine. okay okay <laughs> <laughs> uh we are talking about west side story directed by jerome robbins and robert wise written by ernest lemon Arthur Lawrence, uh, based on the play by Jerome Robbins, and starring Natalie Wood, Richard Boehmer, Russ Tamlin, Rita Moreno, and George Takiris. Unlike other classics, West Side Story grows younger. Thank you. 
on the streets. Go play in a park. Keep off of the grass. Get out of the house. Keep off the block. Get out of here. Keep off the wall. So how do you describe West Side Story to someone who hasn't seen it? Although at this point, it's kind of hard to believe there's anybody out there who hasn't had some exposure to it. But how do you sell it to somebody? Well, what I would say uh, is basically, I think it's probably one of the best Broadway musicals ever brought to screen, to film. Um, You know, it's got great dancing, great music, and uh, even the drama is a little exciting and kind of just impressive i mean the fact that it won 10 academy awards doesn't hurt either right (laughs) so i mean you kind of already hit on this but why did you pick this movie why why of all the movies that are out there why west side story well like i said i think it's a, a a great story i will i will tell you this after you announced your podcast i started chatting with uh tony farnborough Oh, fantastic. I miss Tony. Fan of the podcast, yeah. But I uh, remember when I gave you those choices uh, for films and you told me I had to choose? Yeah. So I discussed with Tony a little bit what he would want me to choose, and he actually said I should do West Side Story. So it's kind of a joint thought, but no, I'm I'm glad that I I chose West Side Story. I'm trying to remember the other movies. Let me see. Do I have that in front of me? Uh, No. uh, Yeah, I don't have the other. What are the other movies you you were I'm trying to remember. It was like Time After Time. Um... I mean, that was my going to be my second top choice, time after time. Um, right. I, I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head. <laughs> I mean, if I look at my phone, I probably can, but. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it was a good range of movies, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what are your favorite kinds of movies? I guess my favorite genre would be science fiction. Although, you know, just any good drama or I suppose a good comedy, although I guess that's comedy is very subjective these days. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I think people might hear, you know, that your favorites are science fiction and then go, well, why the heck did you pick a musical? But at the same time, you look at the career of director Robert Wise. He directs this. He directs The Sound of Music. But he's also a huge science fiction director. He directed the original Star Trek, the motion picture. He directed, um, you know, the Andromeda strain. He goes all the way back to, you know classic the day the earth stood still so there is definitely a connection between science fiction and musicals in some way well definitely with this director you're right he kind of reminds me of um robert rodriguez in that you know he does el mariachi and desperado and these violent movies but then he turns around and he does you know the adventures of shark boy and lava girl and the spy kids movies and these very kid-friendly movies yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with the Spy Kid movies, I think he always wanted to, I remember him saying he wanted to do a movie like Escape from Witch Mountain. So that's yeah. where Spy Kids came from. Well, I just, I think it's neat to see a director that can be that, that ranged in their career and, and do a pretty good job on both sides of that. I agree with you. It's kind of interesting that you bring that up because you say that director, and I think of Steven Spielberg right away, because he is going to be directing the remake or right. of West Side Story. And I'm not, it's hard for me to, you know, I don't like it when Hollywood decides to remake like iconic films. I, I don't know why they do it. Right. <laughs> but admittedly, West Side Story is a play. So that's kind of, I guess it's a, if anything, the subject matter was meant to be performed by different artists along the way. 
In fact, I think it's having a Broadway revival at the beginning of next year. And see, there's your chance to go see it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I can actually catch it, maybe. Uh, hopefully the tickets aren't going to be $700 a pop, though. <laughs> yeah, thank Hamilton for that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the play, but I still haven't seen it except on YouTube. Yeah, same here. <laughs> uh, and it's actually playing, the touring company is playing near me right now, and I wasn't able to get tickets for it. So uh, I love the soundtrack of Hamilton. That's That's... <laughs> That's as close as I'll get to the actual performance. Right. I'm uh, conflicted about Spielberg's remake because on one hand, this is an iconic film. I mean, and and you look at, you know, its popularity. It's 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, 86% on Metacritic. It was added to the National Film Registry in 1997. It's number 51 on AFI's Best 100 Movies, uh, although it did drop 10 spots. It was originally 41 on their initial list. As you said, it won 10 Academy Awards, but at the same time, I feel like there are some problematic elements with this film. I mean, if nothing else, the coloring of the actors, you know, and I, I think if he's going with more authentic Puerto Rican actors, then you avoid that. I remember it's probably been 20 years since I've seen this movie. Oh, okay. And when I originally saw it, the fact that they, had to use, you know, face paint color to, to make the actors the appropriate hue, I guess. That didn't bother me at all. It's something that came into my consciousness through other critics and other shows and that kind of stuff. But it definitely stood out to me when I rewatched it last night. I think I think there's a room for improvement there, but at the same time, maybe it isn't as huge an element as some people have made it out to be. Uh, I don't find it that huge an element. I mean, you know, that I understand how movies were made back then. This movie is almost 60 years old, so I understand kind of, I guess, the the thinking back then and how it worked. The fact that they gave the performances to uh, to Hispanics to play, for the most part, is pretty good. Um, and, you know, I mean, in, in terms of Steven Spielberg's remake, I can understand, I'm going to guess... Now, my biggest problematic with the film, to a certain degree, is the audio. It's very obvious when they switch to, like, the recording, and they're, like, <laughs> thinking. And then the fact that a lot of the actors actually didn't do their own singing. So I'm going to guess that the new version is going to be a little bit more authentic in, in, in that regards. Right. So, but, no, but I, 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 my problem is just that it's a very iconic film. There are a lot of other movies that I think... I've always been like, remake the movies that could have been better, but never were. And this may be a little controversial, but maybe remake Battlefield Earth or something. Uh, <laughs> we don't we don't need a remake of Battlefield Earth. <laughs> no, a good one. One that's a little bit closer to L. Ron Hubbard's work, maybe, or at least better than what Travolta had given us. Yeah. No, I gotcha. I, I, again, I'm hesitant on the remake because, like, I look at this one and some of the language they use in the movie, I mean, it's very authentic for the 60s, but now you kind of cringe when they, you know, call each other, you know, Spick or Pollock or that kind of stuff. But that's almost essential to their lifestyle. No, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, once again, I don't think it's that problematic. I don't know. I mean, look, if Quentin Tarantino can use the N-word in all his movies, I don't see what the problem is with... <laughs> That's a good argument. That's a really good argument. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 uh, just kind of a snapshot in time, especially if 
Spielberg decides to put it on, I mean, like around the same time period as the original film. I haven't seen anything about the time period. I do know that they said that he's going to show them, you know, a little more thug life type thing, you know, getting into trouble and, oh my God, smoking. (laughs) But I'm very curious as to how he'll address the language if he goes with something that is authentic or if that's something he cleans up. I mean, this this is Spielberg who isn't as big a revisionist filmmaker as like George Lucas, but he did go back to E.T. and remove guns. Uh, well, give him some credit. He, he put them back in later. True, true. I mean, recently we had George Lucas. You got Disney Plus, uh, McClunky. I haven't watched it yet, but yeah, I heard <laughs> I've only about seen that. that scene and I realized what he did. And ah, <laughs> You know what? I don't know. I guess he can't do any more damage now. No, I, I guess not. Um, well, let's ta- talk a little bit about how it was received uh, in the day. Roger Ebert... Roger Ebert gave it a, a glorious review, but you wouldn't know it from some of the excerpts of his review. For instance, he says the dancing is remarkable and several of the songs have proven the se- themselves by becoming standards. And there are moments of startling power and truth. West Side Story remains a landmark of musical history. But if the drama had been as edgy as the choreography, if the lead performances had matched Moreno's fierce concentration, if the gangs had been more dangerous and less like bad boy Archies and Jugheads, if the ending had delivered on the pathos and tragedy of the original, there's no telling what might have resulted. The movie began with a brave vision, and it is best when you sense that vision surviving the process by which it was turned into safe entertainment. Do you, what do you think about that as far as, do you feel like the, the, the sharks and the jets are actually a threat, I guess, is the best question about that. Well, you know, it's, it's, so the movie is based on a play and I think it's all interpretive to a certain degree. So mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to put forward our own thought that it is, there are, they are supposed to be violent characters. I mean, there are subtle nods to it, like the scene where the jets are walking through the playground park and everybody stops as they're passing through because I guess they don't want to offend them. You know, like the basketball scene where they're walking through the basketball court and they have to put the basketball down and they pick it up and start playing with it until Riff gives it back to the kid. Right. So, uh, and you know, I mean, you know, I understand where Ebert's coming from. I'm wondering if he's, when he reviewed it, whether it was a time where, you know, I mean, if he was reviewing it around the 70s when you have Scorsese coming out with all those movies, then yeah, I could see how West Side Story would seem kind of tame. But I mean, like I said, it's a play. It's based on a play. I think it's obvious that they were trying to emulate parts of the play. They weren't making this, like I said, they weren't making it like a Scorsese film. They weren't going for complete realism. I mean, you know, people generally don't dance in the middle of the streets. And uh, yeah, that was I had forgotten. You know, I I, I've, I I enjoy musicals a lot. I mean, I'm a big fan of musicals. I was a theater kid in high school and and have always enjoyed musicals. But I forgot this is one of those movies where they not only break out into song which I don't mind in a musical, but they also break into detailed choreography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we, they just don't make those kinds of movies anymore, which again, makes me curious about Spielberg's remake. And, and some of the dancing is just absolutely fantastic. Well, all the dancing is absolutely fantastic, but it is a little off putting, I guess, to, especially since we don't see those kinds of movies anymore. I suppose. I mean, we'll, we'll see what Spielberg's movie does. You know, it's been a while since I've seen like a, uh, music, movie musical on film. Oh yeah, I'm trying to think. When was the last one I saw that was more or less recent? Uh, the Greatest Showman. No, I haven't really caught those. You know, I'm I'm sorry to say I haven't seen The Greatest Showman. I haven't seen uh, 
Lemur- La La Land? No. Oh. <laughs> I really need to catch up. I really enjoyed La La Land, uh, and The Greatest Showman just floored me. I mean, I, I, I didn't expect it to be as fantastic as I ended up thinking that it was. But yeah, I mean, there's like the Les Mis, I, I, that's my favorite Broadway musical. Okay. And the movie is mediocre. Oh, okay. You know, I only saw a little bit of it, and I feel bad that I, I came into the part where Russell Crowe was singing, and I felt like that kind of shot my chances of enjoying it. And I don't understand that, because Russell Crowe's, you know, a rock star. He has a band. How did they make him so just subdued and tame? <laughs> it's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, let me talk one other review. Time Magazine was kind of the negative side of this, and it said, West Side Story goes wildly insufferably wrong when it insists that society is entirely guilty, that the teenage hoodlums are ultimately innocent. Worse yet, the picture becomes wildly immorally sentimental when it attempts the apothesis of alley rats, broadly suggesting that they are the Patrick Henrys of the urban proletariat. (laughs) So both of those kind of talk about the kids, whether they're tame, whether they're wild, that kind of stuff. And then when I was watching it, you know, I, I, you get to that uh, the scene where Anita comes to Docs to relay the message to Tony. Yeah, and they harass her to the point that you know she she flips on them. Do you think that scene's supposed to be indicative of attempted rape? Uh, yeah, I'm surprised you used the uh, R word. I hope you don't lose views or. Oh, no, that's YouTube. Sorry. But <laughs> uh, no, uh, to a certain degree, yeah. I mean, once again, that's kind of a choreographed scene. Usually you guys don't lift it up. I mean, well, I don't know. But yeah, I think it's supposed to be. In fact, if you look at that scene closely, I think one of the interesting things that, that I guess Robert Wise did was that uh, that girl, uh, what's her name? Uh, anybody's? Yeah, she's anybody's. actually in the background, and she looks kind of shocked at the actions that, you know, this group that she wants to be in are doing. So I, I definitely think it was probably supposed to be a kind of attempted rape. And the fact that they have anybody's just standing there at the side, just kind of a little bit shocked. And maybe I'm projecting this, but my impression was that she was back there just a little bit shocked at what was going on. So, yeah, I mean, I think once again, I think it's interpretive. You have to see past the, the dancing and the music to really realize what's what's going on there. I mean, the scene practically ends, or at least the assault of uh, Anita ends with these guys lifting this other guy and preparing to place him on top of her. So, yeah, and that was the only part of it to me that said rape. I up till then I thought it was just kind of she's the enemy assaulting her type thing, but suddenly it was like, wait a minute, is this wow? So, no, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's. What they were implying, if anything. And then while we're talking about reviews, I'd be remiss if I didn't include uh, an excerpt from Pauline Kael's scathing review. She (laughs) notoriously hated this. And unfortunately, her review is not available online except for in bits and pieces. But the, the piece that I was able to pull is the irony of this hyped up slam bang production is that those involved apparently don't really believe that beauty and romance can be expressed in modern rhythms because whenever their Romeo and Juliet enter the scene, the dialogue becomes painfully old fashioned and mawkish. The dancing turns to simpering, sickly romantic ballet and sugary old stars hover in the sky. When true love enters the film, Bernstein abandons Gershwin and begins to echo Richard Rogers, Rudolph Frimley and Victor Herbert. (laughs) Well, I guess Pauline Kael wouldn't like any of the early Disney movies then. 
Uh, she didn't, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing. That's the one thing I wonder about this film. I understand a little bit of where she's coming from because admittedly, you know, this, I don't want to say post-Disney, but you know how the idea of, of I mean, the star-crossed lovers, this, this finding your true love at first sight, that I think might not pass the test of time, especially in today's culture. I'm wondering how quick people are going to be accepting of a guy who just sees a girl at a dance floor and then just immediately falls in love and she with him. So nowadays they want some pretext or some sort of history to happen before two people suddenly become romantic. Yeah, I mean, that was what my response to her was. It's not love. It's Romeo and Juliet. You know, it's 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 that even though they he does tell her, I love you the same night that they meet. And she does tell her him that she loves him the next night. I mean, this only takes place over two days. Romeo and Juliet is not a love story. It's a lust story. It's a passion story. It's being caught up in that first, well, love at first sight type thing where, you know, the hormones are raging and passion is high and you're just getting to know the person. But love to me is something long term, enduring, having to deal with the other person's quirks, having to compromise and and you you don't get that in romeo and juliet you don't get that here no i I see what you're saying you're probably right i never really thought of it that way you know i guess there's a i guess there's a bit of a romantic in me and hoping that it would work out i mean you know but uh i I see your point and i mean admittedly that's one of the sticking points i'll have with the film admittedly i I do remember when i mean out of all of the songs in the film or in the play too uh my least favorites are the ones that are sung solely by richard bamer yeah and uh, I remember listening to Maria this time around, and I, I couldn't help uh, but think about, I don't know if you remember a Cheers episode where Woody sings a song about his girlfriend, Kelly. <laughs> Kelly, 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 yeah. Kelly, Kelly, yep. <laughs> that's what Maria started reminding me of, and it, it's weird that the film seemed to be parodying itself all of a sudden in front of my eyes. All the beautiful sounds of the world in a single Just met a girl named Maria, and suddenly that name. But I think it's just a, you know, it's just watching it, and you know, a lot of history passes. Sometimes I wonder if maybe that's what they based Kelly on, just the fact that this guy was singing Maria, Maria, you know, and just kept echoing that name over and over again. I find it interesting because some of the songs are very iconic, and some of the songs are. Like, where'd this come from? Like, you, there's there's some in there that you just don't remember. Like, I watched it last night, and I would be hard-pressed to tell you some of the songs this morning. What's your uh, favorite song? Um, I have two. I mean, so, like, America's probably the best song in terms of expressing, I guess, social ideas. But me and my daughter have been singing G. Officer Krupke, like, all week. <laughs> that one's just a, it's just a fun song and that's actually one of the issues I'm going to have with the with the film if they follow the play that song comes after the murder after the gang fight right and it just seems like a I mean I can understand it kind of trying to lift the spirits of the audience but I feel like it's totally out of place if they place it after the fight yeah uh, the original play my understanding is cool comes before the fight so instead of being a reaction to Riff's death, it's kind of be cool about the rumble. 
Yeah. And G officer Krupke comes later in the play after the deaths because they wanted to add some levity after such seriousness and yeah. wise wanted to keep the movie dark after that event. I mean, I think that makes sense and I can understand. Cause I mean, I, you know, I decided to watch the movie completely through with intermission and all. And I was actually surprised that the intermission only lasted like a minute and a half. But and it comes the- at a weird <laughs> spot. Like if you, if you watch that version, it comes like, Again, I'm a big fan of musicals, and I'm used to there being a certain structure that Act 1 ends on a high note. It ends with something big. Like, Act 1 should have ended with the song of them heading towards the rumble. You know, the, the I don't even remember what it's called now, quintet or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, the or, Tonight Quintet. Yeah, that that to me is an act ender. And the way it's done in the movie, you end with almost nothing. I mean, it's intermission comes after officer Krupke. Yeah. You have your work, you have your officer Krupke and then you have your war council meeting and then you have intermission. And it's like, wait a minute, really? That's a weird place to put your intermission. Yeah, I guess. I mean, generally I always thought the intermission came after the, the rumble though. Right. That's that. Yeah. I mean, that would be a better place for it too. Yeah. You know, I mean, generally I, 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 Actually, I don't know what Robert Wise was thinking then. You know, I know that they were trying to echo the film, but I believe uh, the the play. But I believe that the play ended the first act of the play, which also I don't understand how it works. But presumably, the intermission came after the rumble, after Riff and uh, Bernardo are dead on stage, which a lot of people also felt back then was kind of a strange place to put it because that's how you want to drop the curtain and leave your audience like well that definitely makes them wanting to come back which is uh, kind yeah. of the point <laughs> yeah officer krupke's definitely my favorite musical number from this and I, I again it's interesting because if you go with the original placement riff is dead at that point yeah yeah so he doesn't get to participate in the song <laughs> yeah they added in uh, a new role i believe ice was a new role for the film and he's the one that actually ends up singing uh, the cool song later on in the film, which was originally sung by Riff. Right. Yeah, it's odd because they deleted a character, Diesel, and they added a character, Ice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I guess, I mean, I guess when they were, you know, I can understand why they did it for the film because, I mean, I'm going to guess that uh, a theater audience, well, uh, like a, a live theater audience is probably different from a movie audience in terms that, Actually, I don't know what the difference is, but <laughs> but I guess there's just this idea that theater and film audiences are different and how they approach a film is different. I remember thinking, you know, uh, you saw Little Shop of Horrors, right? The film version with Frank Oz. Yeah, absolutely. So I remember Frank Oz's, the reason why he changed the ending was uh, he said that had he gone with the original ending where, like, the plants take over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would have been a, it's a downer for the audience. And also that in a play, usually in a play, what happens is at the end, all of the cast comes back and they take a bow. So the audience feels a little bit better. Right. Knowing that these characters actually haven't really died or whatever. So he felt that and that's why he went along with the idea of the happy ending for uh, little shop of horrors, which before I used to not mind, but now after seeing both back to back, the both different endings in the context of the film, I realized the horrible editing choices they made with the good ending. Yeah, it's. Uh, I had a, a a film studies class in college, and they talked about that about you know theater and that that importance of that curtain call to show you everybody's okay. And the example he used in the class was the movie Predator. 
Oh, okay. Because if you watch Predator, you know, almost all of your characters die, right? Except for yeah. Arnold and the girl gets away. And so the end credits of that movie feature shots of the actors smiling as their name is put on screen. And he he hypothesized that that was kind of a curtain call for that exact purpose so that it didn't have as downer an ending. Oh, everybody's dead. It's like, oh, here they are taking their bows. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think there's a difference in theater audiences and movie audiences in that movies are more wildly accessible. And theater, I mean, especially 1960s, theater is going to be significantly less accessible to a lot of people, especially like Broadway theater, which requires getting up to New York and paying really high ticket prices. Uh, Even then, you're going to have less people who see it. And so you can craft your play to a more specific audience, whereas movies need to be a little more widespread i guess yeah i think you're right i think movies i mean that's i think movies have to be i mean from a a producer's point of view or hollywood's point of view it has to be a little more accessible a little more universal a little more accepting to a wider a wider audience Mm -hmm. but i mean you know it becomes that's why i think some people get upset with how movies are seen to be tamed you know, I mean, you mentioned G. Officer Krupke. I remember looking at the lyrics for the play, and, you know, there are a few changes to it. I mean, there's a line where uh, the line of the movie is, uh, what is it, my father was a junkie or something like that? But but the, the, the movie is, my father is a bastard. I mean, I'm, the play version is, my father is a bastard. So for some reason, they felt maybe the word bastard was bad. And, and it's kind of funny, because there's at one point in the film, uh, it's in, once again, it's in G. Officer Krupke, they do say that d word they say damn yeah which i think well was that pushing was that like the f word for the uh the 60s or something in film i don't even remember was west side story even rated back then the film that's a good question or was Uh, it not rated i i know that they had to pass you know approval and that's part of why they made the changes that they made yeah not rated yeah it did not so ratings didn't really exist at that point i guess yeah, so they definitely had to be a little, I guess, more cautious with her film. Yeah. Uh, backtracking, you know, you, you talked about America, um, which is definitely one of the most iconic songs from this. And the tune has been used in advertisements and parodies and that kind of stuff. But when I was watching this last night, I was surprised at the actual content of that song. It's not the song you think it is. No, yeah, I, I think you're right. It sounds like this very upbeat, you know, America, yay song. And really, it's a scathing criticism of how people are treated in America. Lots of new housing with more space. Lots of toys slamming in our face. I'll get a terrorist apartment. Better get rid of your accent. Life can be bright in America. If you can fight in America. Life is all right in America. If you're all white in America. Uh, well, yeah, definitely if you take it from the point of view of the, the sharks, the male members, which is another change that you're going to do because I believe in the, uh, in the play version, it was like two of the girls that were arguing. Yeah. And not uh, Anita and Bernardo. But I think it's a, it's a – I agree with you. I, I believe that it's trying to show two points of view. Because, look, I understand uh, Anita's point of view with a lot of Puerto Ricans were coming to New York. I mean, you know, Puerto Rico's a, a U.S. commonwealth. Everyone there is already born an American citizen. And 
you know, America was a place of, of opportunity, whereas Puerto Rico was one of diminishing opportunities. Even now, I think it's still the same way. So I kind of understood Anita's point of view, but I think I also understood Bernardo's point of view about, I guess, the racism and the uh, lack of respect that, that uh, Latinos experienced in the uh, United States. Well, you say experienced past tense. How much of that do you think is prevalent today? I mean, how relatable is this when Spielberg's remake comes out? Well, yeah, this movie actually is still pretty relevant today, which is, I guess, kind of sad, but also kind of, once again, goes to the like timeless nature of this film. Uh, you know, I think things are a little better. I don't think things are as bad as they once were. I mean, you know, uh, see, I don't want to get political. I mean, it seems like we may be <laughs> regressing a little bit these days in terms of our government, but I keep hoping it's just like a dying last grasp of the the right to hold on to what they've had. Right. But, you know, I mean, once again, it's, 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 it's relevant. It's socially relevant. I mean, even the song G officer Krupke is a lot deeper than it's upbeat nature seems to indicate. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely depth to these songs. That's why I'm so bad. What? Officer Krupke, you're real square. This boy don't need a judge, he needs an analyst's care. This shucks his neurosis, that ought to be quite. He's psychologically destroyed. I'm destroyed. We're, we're destroyed, we're destroyed, we're the most destroyed. Like we're Yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole, I have a little bit of experience of that whole kind of circular, you know, experience for someone who's like in the system from going from a judge to a social worker to a psychologist and then back to the police officer all over again so oh yeah yeah i mean well yeah 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 i mean i i had a daughter who uh went through something similar where she, you know she uh went through the system until it kind of just because i mean it, it becomes a little bit it, it's that they're trying to find a solution and that they can't so then they just keep passing it seems to the next step or the next person hoping that that'll like solve the situation sometimes it doesn't yeah, I, I think that is part of where Time Magazine came up with the idea of, you know, making the kids innocent and saying society is the problem. And I don't I don't think that's definitive for the entire movie. I, I think that's definitely a social commentary that is earned. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's definitely like I said, it's 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 a musical. It's, you know, there's dancing. All of it's kind of I think you have to dig a little bit past that to see the actual meaning of this film. Which is what to you? To a certain degree, it attacks a lot of the issues that we're highlighting now, like toxic masculinity or or racism or even uh, the difference, uh, you know, the person who plays the police officer. There's a, there's a scene in the film where I believe it's in Doc Steiner where he tells Bernardo to leave. He says, yeah, I know, you know, it's not fair, but you know what? I've got a badge. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, that right there. I mean, there are a lot of little scenes in this film that are put in there, and you see the kind of message that they're implying. They just don't necessarily hit you over the head or even use it too strongly. But it's there, and it's it's there to be... I mean, maybe you have to see the movie like 10 or 20 times, <laughs> like I have, to finally realize all of what the film is trying to say. No, I mean, it's it's definitely got a lot of you know, commentary there. I mean, there's, there's, as you said, there's gender bias, there's, uh, racism, there's, you know, uh, inequality because they're kids. Uh, I mean, there's definitely a lot of commentary there. My, my girlfriend was watching the movie with me last night and she pointed out that scene that you mentioned in Doc Steiner, 
Yeah. Uh, where the police officer, you know, weighs on the power of his badge. She said it's really interesting that in that scene, you have, you know, the sharks, you have the jets, you have the police, you have Doc. And she pointed out the the least racist or the only character who isn't really racist in that scene is the old man. Yeah, yeah. And usually we would associate, you know, it being a generational thing that the older generation is the racist one and the youngers, you know, are, are trying to evolve past that. So it's interesting that he's the one character who isn't racist in that scene. No, I think you're right. If anything, there could be a, a small subtext, subtext trying to say that, because admittedly the film ends and there are scenes also, I mean, you mentioned uh, gender inequality, so you have anybody's, but near the end of the film, she's kind of accepted into the group. Ice kind of says, I forget what he says, but uh, she, he calls her buddy boy as a kind of indoctrination into the gang. So they finally seen past her being just a girl or a tomboy who wants to be part of the group. Yeah, because she's she's proven her worth at that point. She's yeah. the one who's, you know, given them the information on Tony and instead of throwing her away like they've been doing the whole movie, they finally, yeah, Ice finally embraces her or accepts her. Yeah, and also the end of the film when you have the jets and the uh the sharks both carry Tony's body out of the uh the park, the playground. It's kind of this idea at least they're trying to push it that, you know, maybe through experience and after a while we'll learn to kind of accept each other. The, the movie ha- did receive some criticism, you know, I mean, it is based on the foundation of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but it did receive some criticism that it didn't hold true to Romeo and Juliet with the ending. Yeah, instead of Juliet pretending to kill herself you have the mistake message from Anita saying, oh, Maria's dead. And she's not really dead. And that's what prompts the the end game. Yeah. But you end the movie with Tony dead and Maria still alive instead of your star-crossed lovers both dead. What, what do you think about that? You know what? I guess to a certain degree, I think it's them just wanting to be a little bit different from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I also think it feeds into what I was saying before about the possibility of growth for all of the characters. I mean, admittedly, if anything, that's the one part of the film where we get kind of a, I guess, like a a sad ending is through Maria, where she says she can kill now because she has hate too. How many bullets are left, Gina? Enough for you and you. All of you. You all killed him and my brother and Rick. Not with bullets and guns, with hate. Well, I can kill too, because now I have hate. How many can I kill, Chino? How many? And still have one bullet left for me. The idea yeah. that she didn't have hate before, but now that she's has this hatred in her heart, now she can kill, and she doesn't do it. And even the movie tries to... to I think placate some audiences because I always thought it was interesting that they show the cops leading away. Uh, Chino. Chino, yeah. The cops leading Chino away. It's kind of like, well, the bad guy didn't get away. So, But but yeah, I think with Maria's kind of re- revelation that she's changed and not necessarily for the better. Well, no. I mean, she when she first appears in the movie, she's in that white slip, uh, you know, 
complaining about just an inch, lower the lower the, the dress just an inch. And when mm-hmm. she puts on the dress, it's this gorgeous white dress. And there at the end, she, her she's in a red dress. You know, I mean, she's definitely been impacted by the events. And here is this blood red dress along with like a, a mourner's shawl, this black shawl. I mean, the, yeah. just the color symbolism alone shows that she's become this darker person. Oh, you're right. You're right. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about the, the lighting of the film, like the color. Uh... I love it. I mean, it's it's very it, it. And again, it makes me curious about how Spielberg's going to do a remake. This is very much feels like a stage play brought to life on screen. And that's why I said, like, you have the musical numbers where they not only break into song, but into well-choreographed dance numbers. And we don't make those kinds of movies anymore. Now they may break into song, but it still feels very real. And that's not an element. This has almost a dreamlike uh, element to it because it is very theatrical and it's in the way it's lit, in the the, the sets. Um, you know, it, it doesn't feel like they're in New York. It feels like they're on a stage. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not a criticism. I like that. Yeah. But we, we also don't make those kinds of movies anymore. No, you're right. You're right. I, I definitely think he was going for I mean, you know, Robert Wise insisted on Jerome Robbins sharing a, a co-directing credit. So I think he understood the importance of, I guess, that theater quality to the film. Do you do you know the history between the, the with the Robbins? Uh, not really. What? He was uh, so he was hired to direct it uh, to direct the choreographed numbers. Okay, and they but they wanted a more mainstream director to handle the the regular scenes. So they brought in Robert Wise. Oh, okay, uh, Jerome Robbins choreographed all the dance numbers, and I think he got to film like four of them. But he'd never directed before, and he the, basically the quote was he could not stop directing. He ran over time and over budget just on those four dance numbers. So he gets fired and Robert wise ends up directing the majority of the movie still using Robin's choreography. And that's, I think why it was essential that Robin still got a credit, you know, so they are co-directors, even though Robin's did not do as much as originally anticipated because they gave him the ax. Oh, okay. Actually, I didn't know that. Um, I always thought that, Actually, I had always assumed that Jerome Robbins was brought in later, that Robert Wise couldn't couldn't figure out how to direct the dance numbers so that that's why he had Jerome Robbins brought aboard. I didn't know it was the other way around. Yeah. I mean, they both were essentially there from the start before they actually started filming. So it's not like a Brian Singer situation where somebody oh, else okay. gets over. It's, <laughs> yeah. they, they were supposed to be co-directors, and I just find it interesting that they, they still gave Robbins a, an equal credit even though he got fired off of the project. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, Robert Wise's direction was okay. There are some scenes that are, you know, I, I once again, I'll, I'll attribute it to it being a film done 60 years ago. I mean, they do that, that small out of focus scene at the dance to kind of mm-hmm. highlight that Tony and Maria are, I guess, infatuated with each other. And it does come off a little rough with that little circular focus shot on oh, each character. See, I loved that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a little heavy-handed as far as like, oh, they're in love and none of the rest of the world matters. And we've seen that done better in other movies, but I loved it. You know, Robert Wise does do it better because when they meet on the dance floor, all of a sudden, all of the dancers, they, they move off and the lighting changes. So it seems like they're really solitary. I mean, they have a few dancers in the background, but it's not as crowded. And I thought that was a better subtle choice to do yeah. rather than the circular focus focus shot 
<laughs> but, but, no, but yeah, but I, I still enjoy that. Also, I was asking about the color because I really like the coloring too, or the, the lighting and the reds and the uh, just the way that it was filmed. Uh, it, it was really nicely done. I thought yeah. it definitely added to the film and added to what the the message of the film was. Now, I have a relatively hot take on the movie. I'll, I'll see what your feeling is. I feel like Natalie Wood is largely wasted in this film. They they color her so it's not her natural appearance. They dub all of her songs so it's not her singing. Her accent is not the greatest for the lines of dialogue she does give, and I feel like they kind of wasted an asset that they had here. Um, you know what? I think part of it's you know I'm not sure how big Natalie Wood was back then. I'm guessing that she was. I hate to think she I, was like on the cusp of becoming a big thing. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that they picked her because everyone else in the film wasn't really that big. You know, I'm not sure if Richard Bamer was anything big back then. I mean, I know he was. Well, this is like his most notable role, and yeah. he didn't actually like his performance in it. Oh wow! Okay. So, you know, I, I, part of me thinks that they cast Natalie Wood because she was a name mm-hmm. and she had the look. I mean, apparently she couldn't really sing the songs that, <laughs> I mean, they had, what is it? Uh, I forgot who it was, Marnie Nixon? Yeah, Marnie Nixon. So she, she did most of the singing. She's done a lot of singing for people <laughs> in, in film. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, was she wasted? I don't know. I mean, the role is... Both, you know, the interesting thing is that you have a movie about Romeo and Juliet, and in a weird sort of way, they're the least interesting characters of the film. I mean, they're just in love. There's no real growth outside of the ending where Maria suddenly shifts from being a, a positive person to being just completely revealing her negative side. But, you know, I mean, you know, that's that's the weird thing about That's the one thing I will say. I mean, and I'm not looking forward to Spielberg because they got Ansel Elgort to play Tony. Yeah. And I'm like, eh, okay, so here's another <laughs> baby-faced actor they're going to pick. And I mean, hopefully he can sing. I'm, I'm guessing that he can sing. I'm guessing that Spielberg's going to be a little more authentic with the numbers. Because I don't think today we're too fond of having people uh, dubbed or, or ADR'd in films. No, not. We're, we're less Especially when they're singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, you know, it's it's... I don't know. I thought Natalie Wood was okay. I think she played her part pretty well. I'm not sure how much more. Maybe she could have added more to the role. Maybe she felt uncomfortable playing a a, a, a Latin role. I'm not exactly sure. I think she did pretty well considering what she was giving. Yeah, it, it's you make the comment. You know, most of these weren't big names at the time, and and I think it does say something that like I stood up and took notice when John Aston appears. Yeah, yeah, because so did I. Because there's your big name for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I always forget that he's in it until he shows up, and I just it, it immediately makes me laugh, especially with his voice and everything. It's just, it's just, it, it really stands out, especially considering how well we've come to know who he is. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, before we move into kind of the end game here, do you have anything else you want to add in about West Side Story? I, I thought the performance was great. I thought the performance by the the police officer, and I forgot his name. Uh, the detective, uh, Krupke, uh, Krupke, not, not Krupke, uh, well, I forgot his name. Uh, the, uh, insp- the, invest- the, in- the investigator, the guy who played, he was the guy who did the, uh, he was a psychologist at the end of Psycho. So it was kind of like, was he? Yeah, it's the same guy. The original oh, yeah. cycle, not the Gus Van Sant version. Well, I don't even remember that the <laughs> Gus Van Sant version exists. Yeah, you're right. Simon Oakland. Uh, yeah, sure enough, he was. 
Yeah, yeah, and I was, and I thought he gave a really good performance. There, are, there are scenes in the film where he's just, he's really like just antagonizing the gangs, and it comes off pretty well. I mean, I, I think he gave a really good, subtle performance there too, where he seems like he cares, and it's interesting. He sides with the, uh, if anything, he sides with the jet, uh, with the jets, but even he has kind of a, a disdain for them as well when they yeah. won't like reveal the location of the. Uh, of the of the rumble but yeah i thought i should mention him uh what else uh the actor who played krupke uh is the one who originated the role on broadway as well okay should add that in yeah Um, yeah i mean i should also mention what's his name russ tamblin he was really good i mean he was jumping all over the place oh god yeah yeah i really appreciated his performance as well that's what i'm saying it seems like the other characters were more interesting Russ Tamblin's well, and that's I think part of why Anita. I made the comment about Natalie Wood that I did. I mean, compared, especially compared to Rita Moreno. Oh my God, her performance is just like I was watching one of the scenes, the scene in the in the sewing shop between her and Maria, and it's like, oh, that's why she won the Oscar right there. Oh, okay. You know what? There's just a lot of great numbers in there. I really like the songs where where two characters interact. So, you know, like I was mentioning about how the whole Love Conquers All might seem a little dated, but they have that little duet, Rita Moreno and uh, Natalie Wood, where she comes in with like a boy like that, will kill your brother. But then Maria counters with, you know, but you were in love once. Don't you know how that feels like? And for me that, I guess, through music once again, if not through maybe reality or necessarily the time it needs to digest all that, they kind of compress all those feelings into that one number and then we move on so that we understand that Anita yeah. will do this favor for Maria and go tell Tony where she is. And, you know, it's, it's just, I just, I, you know, a lot of the numbers, that's why I like America so much. It's a, it's a conversation between two people, you know, and even the quintet's a really nice little touch with everyone revealing what they want to do that night and what they're going to do. So, I, you know, I just really love the film. And I think it's, like I said, I think it's probably one of the best musicals ever brought to film. It's iconic. Uh, We'll see what Spielberg does with it. I I don't think he'll do a bad job. The sad thing is that it's going to be compared to the original, and I have a really hard time believing that it's going to surpass it in any way or shape or form. Yeah. So it becomes why even bother? Leave it to the stage for people to replay over and over again? I think with film, there's a certain amount of permanence to what's uh, shown, and, and it just... I don't know, but uh, no, like I said. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think this is an iconic musical. When I think movie musical, this is one of the first ones that pops into mind. And that that Ebert excerpt that I read was from kind of a looking back at it. And one of his comments was that it, it, it isn't considered the iconic movie musical that it could have been. That accolade tends to go to Singing in the Rain. And when I asked the other day on Twitter – and Facebook, what people's favorite movie musical was singing in the rain got mentioned quite a few times. And this one, not so much, which is a shame because I, this is, uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's a great movie. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, I enjoyed it. And I was, I really appreciate you bringing it up so that I could revisit it. Look, uh, all credit to singing in the rain. That's like my second favorite musical, but Amelia, the thing about uh, West Side Story. It's just you know when I look at both films, Singing in the Rain is really a fun musical. It's just full of joy, tells a fun story. But when I look at West Side Story, there's a certain depth to it that Singing in the Rain doesn't really have. 
So I always flip-flop between which one is my favorite musical, Singing in the Rain or West Side Story. And sometimes I say it just depends on the mood I'm in. So Gotcha. All right, well, let's move into the kind of closing the show out here. We go with The Algorithm Says. Uh, this is kind of a lightning round response to movies that uh, algorithms say, if you like this movie, then you'll like these. Uh, I will warn you that you have ended up with one of the strangest collection of algorithm recommendations that I have seen so far. So just kind of lightning response. Yes, you like this movie. No, you don't like this movie. Okay. You, how the hell is this connected type thing? So... An American in Paris. Um, no, it has, it's closer to Singing in the Rain than it is to West Side Story. Okay, Chicago. Uh, and once again, these oh, Chicago's a Broadway play. Subject matter, once again, not too close to West Side Story, so I'm going to say no. Singing in the Rain. Once again, it's a little bit like apples and oranges, you know. <laughs> yeah, you got, you, you got two great musicals, but in terms of the subject matter and the depth. They're completely opposite. Or not opposite, but just different different areas. Okay. All right. Buckle up because now we get weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Midnight Cowboy. Wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm trying to see the Oh wow, no. I mean, I don't know. Uh no. No. I, I All I could think is New York City, you know, kind of the underlife of New York City. I guess, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. That's 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 one's about a male prostitute and his sick buddy. Yeah. And then you have West Side Story. So, <laughs> uh, Marnie. Marnie. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, what the Sean Connery film? Wow. Yep. You know, I've never really seen it, so I can't say. Okay. The Breakfast Club. Wow. <laughs> I'm guessing the dance number in this in the in the in the school. That's about it. I mean, you have mixed match lovers too with uh, what's his name, with Molly Ringwall and uh, Judd Nelson. Yeah, M- my guess is kind of the bias, the age bias, because you have okay, that. Okay, that in, too. In, yeah, yeah. Uh, Coal miner's daughter. No. <laughs> Although once again, I, I haven't seen that film in a long, long time. But that's that's yeah. that's a biopic. So uh, Chaplin. Wow. Uh, or some the Robert Downey Jr. one, I'm assuming. Yeah, I had to double check that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, once again, I think maybe West Side Story is just too iconic to really connect closely to. I don't understand how it. I, it that's a connection either. Jewel of the Nile. Wow. What is this? <laughs> what is it? Just mismatched pairs, I guess. Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner. I mean, oh, wow. I mean, there's no music. It's an action movie. I don't know. And finally, oh. Excalibur. Wow. John Borman, really? Once again, mismatched pairs. That's all I can think of. Lancelot and Guinevere. Okay, okay. That's, that's the connection. But outside of that one connection, no. But I would think they would go with Camelot rather than Excalibur. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's more of a, a yeah, it's a play. It's, it's, it's a musical. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know. <laughs> I told you, it's the weirdest collection I've seen so far. All right, finally, we end with the pop quiz. Four questions kind of related to the movie. Are you ready? I'll try. Go ahead. All right. Number one, reportedly the filmmakers considered several other actors for the lead roles. Once it was determined dubbing could be used to replace singing, who was not considered for the lead role of Tony? A, Elvis Presley, B, Warren Beatty, C, Burt Reynolds, or D, Robert Redford? Well, if singing isn't considered, I'll say Elvis Presley. 
Nope. Elvis Presley was actually offered the role and it was turned down by Colonel Tom Parker. Wow. Uh, this is kind of a trick question. All of these actors were considered for Tony. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> which I, I I want to see what a Robert Redford playing Tony would be like, frankly. <laughs> Actually, I would want to see what Burt Reynolds looks like playing Tony. <laughs> uh, number two, the production was quite demanding on costumes due to the extensive dancing, much of which was performed on concrete instead of theater floors. How many pairs of shoes did the actors go through over the course of production? A, 150, B, 200, C, 300, or D, 500? Wow. You can, you can like, spare the wrong answers a, a larger margin of error. <laughs> I'm going to say 300, although it's probably 500, but I'm going to say 300. I'm going to go a little low. No, nah, close. It was 200. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, number three, West Side Story won 10 out of the 11 Oscars it was nominated for. But one of the film's wins was especially historical for what reason? A, the first time two supporting actors won when the leads didn't. B, the first time a Broadway adaptation won Best Adapted Screenplay. C, the first time two directors shared credit and therefore two Oscars were awarded. Or D, the first time an adaptation won both the Tony and the Oscar. Wow. You think I would know this considering I've seen the film and read up a lot on it. (laughs) I'm going to say... The co-directory one, uh, C. Absolutely. It, uh, d- that was the first time that co-directors were awarded an Oscar, and it didn't happen again until the Coen brothers won in 2007 for oh, No Country for Old Men. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, finally, West Side Story was the second highest grossing film of 1961. What beat it? A, 101 Dalmatians. B, The Absent-Minded Professor. C, The Parent Trap. Or D, The Guns of Navarone. Well, I, I listened to your Kevin Smith podcast the other day, uh, so I'm going to go with a Disney film. I'm going to say 101 Dalmatians. And I'm going to give you partial credit for that one, because according to IMDb's trivia, that's what beat it for the year. But according to Wikipedia, the guns of Navarone beat it. Okay. So in both cases, it's number two, but there seems to be some incorrect information about what actually beat it. So, yeah. But lots of Disney films, which is what I wanted to point out. You know, you, you made the comment earlier about it having to compete kind of with that Disney era or was the Disney era done? No, it's right in the heart of the Disney era there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Do you have anything you want to promote? Anything where people can find you? No, nowhere. I guess this podcast, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Luis, I really appreciate you bringing this movie. As I said, it'd probably been 20 years since I'd seen it, and it was a really fun to revisit it. I'm glad I got you to see it. I'm hoping that a lot of other people will see it before the Spielberg one, because I'd hate for people to think that the Spielberg one was the uh, somehow the definitive version. Yeah, that's a good point. People definitely should revisit this before uh, next December when the Spielberg version comes out. All right, yeah. man. Thank you very much. All right. Well, you're welcome, Rafe. It was nice being here. So what do you think? Are you ready for Spielberg to remake this film, or is it a classic that should just be left alone? Do you miss movies that feature this kind of detailed choreography, or are you glad modern musicals seem to focus more on the singing side of things? And is Natalie Wood wasted in this picture? Let me know what you think. You can find me at Talmhess on Twitter. 
the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we are at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. The podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you can find podcasts. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome. Although, as I said at the beginning, I'd appreciate it more if you just helped spread the word and help me build up more listeners. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Luis Ramirez for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll try to get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This.